Good morning again, everyone, and welcome to Sardis. We're glad that you're all here this morning. Justice and I were talking this week about how much more difficult it is to write a Sunday school lesson outside the context of a series, and the same principle is true of a sermon. Uh, there's, if you're looking through God's Word, uh, it's easy to look and say, well, just you write, you know, preach on whatever you want. But in, in some ways, that's freeing, and in other ways, that's the biggest problem, because it's all good. There's so much to choose from. There's so much that's beneficial. How do you pick just one passage? How do you narrow it down? But as I was praying and studying this week, I was asking myself the question, what, what do people need to know above all else? What, what do we need to hear the most? And when you ask it that way, the answer to that question is pretty simple. What we need most is the gospel. It's a return to the basics of what we believe and what Christ has done for us. And I was firmly convinced of this again this week after hearing of the tragic death of a young girl in our community. I was reminded of the fact that God has ordained our days and we do not know the exact time we have been given. But I do know that we are all closer to the end today than we were yesterday. So this morning we're going to dig into one of the core texts of our faith and be reminded that the work of Christ on our behalf is genuinely good news. So as we've been accustomed to doing, let's, let's stand again this morning in honor of God's Word as we read today's text. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3. Starting in verse 16, we're going to read verses 16 through 18. Starting in verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the beautiful day that we have been given outside. Lord, we thank you for the weather. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for here the, the gospel in a nutshell, this, this summary statement here of what it is that we believe, what it is that we hang our hope on. God, I pray that you'd help us not to, to take that for granted, not to just think that well we've we know this one we've memorized this one since we were a kid there's nothing new here lord help us to to dig into this help us to preach the gospel to listen to the gospel to soak up the gospel for ourselves each and every day or knowing that we'll never grow beyond it lord we thank you for again for the word that you've given us how you've revealed yourself through scripture pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to to see and to hear and to understand, but also that it would soak in, that you would apply it to our lives, and that we would leave here changed. And in so doing, make a, make a difference for your kingdom. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, this passage today, this is likely the most well-known and easily recognized text in the entire Bible. Yet often... We recite it or we read over it without really stopping to ponder it. We, we take it for granted. But it really is a crucial text. And in preparing for today's message, 
Since we had finished 1 Peter, and Pastor Mark will be resuming his series in Acts next week, I figured there was really no more core text to the Christian faith than this one. Where, where, where better to start or to spend a Sunday morning? So today we're going to dig into this text so that we don't just know it intellectually, but also that it would remind us of the truth and the necessity of the gospel, even for believers. <clears throat> the gospel is for all. Non-believers for salvation, but believers need to have the gospel preached to them over and over again as well. We all need to be reminded to live in the reality of the gospel, of the good news of what Christ has done for us. The word gospel means good news. And we need to allow it to help us see the world as it really is, to keep things in context. This is a text that no matter how we mature in our spiritual walk, we will never move beyond the need for it. We will never outgrow it. Herein we have the gospel, the good news of what Christ did on our behalf summarized for us. And notice here at the very beginning of verse 16, notice the motivation. Notice the motivation of God here in the very beginning. God's motivation behind His actions is love. For God so loved the world. That term for could also, you could substitute the word because. It's a causal term. For, because God so loved the world. It's vitally important to note here that God did not love the world because the world was lovely. God does not love us because we are lovely. God did not love me because I was lovable. Look at Romans 3.23, just a couple of examples here. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all does not leave much wiggle room there. Each and every one of us has fallen short of God's glory. None of us is lovable by our nature, by our merit. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again, every single one of us. And then Romans 6.23, we see, For the wages, the price, the penalty, the consequence of sin is death. That's what sin earns us. And we just established that all of us are sinners, and what we deserve for that sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, if you skip on down in John chapter 3 to verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, all men are born with a sinful nature. And all men, all mankind, every single one of us will willfully rebel against the will and desire and directives of God at every opportunity, every chance we get if left to our own devices. That's the truth. That's the reality. That's where we are without Christ. No one comes to God on their own. No one willingly chooses to do what is right in God's eyes on their own. We will always 
always, always choose to rebel if left to our own devices. Our hearts are evil from birth. It is impossible for us to please God on our own. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to do what is righteous in God's eyes on our own. In fact, the world is so opposed to God and so thoroughly corrupted by sin that later on in his life, John himself says in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, John says, to, he's writing to these churches and tell, he tells the people, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world, the society, the culture, outside of God's people, outside of the church, the world is fundamentally opposed to God. And we are warned not to love it. Yet God chose to. God chose, it says, but God so loved the world. Yet here it also says that we are not to love the world. How do we reconcile those two? You see, our love for the world is sinful. Our love for the world comes from a desire to participate and to become like the world. That's why we love the world. It's a participatory love. We, we want to align ourselves with the world. We want to be like the world. We want what the world says is good. We worship the things of the world and pursue the passions and pleasures that the world falsely promises to us. God's love for the world is pure. God's love for the world comes from a desire to transform the world, to draw the world to draw each and every one of us away from sin and redeem us from the sin and the lies and the corruption that has infected all of humanity since Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned for the first time. In the phrase, the world, all the earth is included, but we're talking specifically here about humanity. And that includes you and me. There's nothing... There never was anything in me that was inherently desirable from God's perspective. The thoughts of my heart were always evil all the time, according to the Bible, and yet God loved me. God's love is not a response to anything in me, but it flows out of His nature because He is love. That's who He is, and it has nothing to do with who I am. God loved me in spite of me, not because of me. God loves you, God loves the world in spite of its sin, not because of any inherent desirability, any inherent merit. And because God so loved the world, He initiated the mission. Because He loved the world, He initiated the mission. He gave His one and only Son. Because of His love, He gave His Son, and He did so in two ways. Number one, Jesus was not 
created at this point. It's not like there was no Jesus and then we here in the New Testament God creates Jesus. That's not how it worked. Jesus was already existent in heaven with God and God sent him from heaven to earth to take on humanity. He remained his full deity, but he left heaven and he humbled himself and he was incarnated as a man, fully man, born of a woman. God gave him to us, sent him from heaven to earth. He walked this earth and he lived the perfect sinless life that was impossible for us to live. You see, the whole, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is true for all, for every single human being that has ever existed on the face of the earth except for Jesus Christ. He did what we could not do, what was impossible for us. That was phase one, if you will. We're all sinners from birth, as we established earlier, but the punishment for our rebellious hearts is death. We already looked at Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, the punishment for sin, what our sin deserves, what it has earned us, is death. So then comes phase two, the second way that God gave Christ to us, is that he gave him to die. Not only did he send him to become a man, but he sent him to die. He died on the cross. He was perfectly innocent, having done no wrong. But he willingly went to the cross, and God laid our sin that you and I committed, the the evil that was in our hearts, God laid that on him, and he paid for our sin, past, present, and future, with his life. He became the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, so that the debt our sin incurred, that we could never pay, he paid on our behalf. God gave him to live, and he gave him to die. He gave his only son, meaning that Jesus is exclusive. There is no other. There's no other alternative. Salvation cannot be found. Indeed, it cannot exist and does not exist in any other person or in any other so-called deity or any other religion. The gospel is exclusive. And this is the message the disciples preached in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. They said, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is not something that the apostles just made up. This is something Jesus himself claimed as well in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. There is no other way. Because of the love of God, and only because of the love of God, He sent His Son Jesus on a mission from heaven to earth to live and die on our behalf and to rise again to secure for us what we're going to call the offer. The offer. Continue on, look there in in verse Chapter 3, verse 16. What is, the, what is this offer? It says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The offer is eternal life. Being declared justified, being declared not guilty when we stand before God in judgment on the basis of the work of Christ on our behalf. Not being declared not guilty because 
we did more good than bad. That's not how it works. Each and every one of us are sinners. Therefore, we are all guilty. The only, way, the only way we can stand before the righteous judge and be declared not guilty is if we are, is if God sees the work of Christ in us. If God sees Christ's righteousness and not our sin. If he sees our sin as being paid for. Our account has been settled, if you will. We've all incurred an unpayable debt of sin. There's no way that you and I can work it off. There's no way we could ever earn God's favor. We could never pay the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. One sin, two sins, a life of sin. Just the heart of sin that we're born with earns us the just penalty of death. And there's no way that we can pay that. There's no way we can satisfy that on our own. But the offer made through the sacrifice of Christ is payment in full by Jesus on our behalf. It's being able to stand before the throne of God and have Him see the righteousness of Christ in us rather than our sin. The offer is redemption. It's salvation from certain judgment in hell. The alternative is that we get the punishment for our sin. If salvation is the offer, the alternative is that we get what we deserve. We receive the punishment for our sin, that our sin deserves, and that is eternity in hell. Eternity, and this is not eternity separated from God, because there's nowhere that God is not. Hell is eternity under God's wrath and God's judgment. For the sinful and rebellious hearts we have, and God is 100% justified in that, because that is what we deserve. That is the wages of our sin. That is our default destination. When we are born, that's where we're headed. And that is the reality that, w- that awaits us all apart from the grace of God, apart from the love of God. We can never be saved from this destiny by our own merit. There's nothing we can do to escape that fate, but only by God's grace. And grace, by definition is something that is undeserved. But notice who this offer is made to. This offer is made to whoever. Some of your Bibles may say, use the fancy word, whosoever. Whoever leaves no room for discrimination. There's none. It doesn't matter your past or your present. Your race, your heritage, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, this offer is extended to all. If you draw breath today, this offer is for you. Which then begs the question, if this offer is for everyone, what is the requirement? What is the requirement? What do I have to do to accept this offer? Jesus says, he uses the phrase, believes in me. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The requirement is only to accept it. It's a gift of God's grace. It's not anything that we can earn. It's not anything that we, if we do enough that God will give us, God will grant us eternal life. There's nothing we can do to earn it. All we can do is throw ourselves on the mercy of God and accept it. This doesn't mean that 
This, this believing in God does not believe does not mean believing that God exists or that this is true. Believing that God exists, believing that this is true, that's that's great. But look at what James says in James two nineteen. He says, "You believe that God is one, you do well. Great. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Even the demons believe that God is real. Even the demons believe the gospel is true. Satan himself knows the gospel is true." Believing that it's true, being convinced that it's true, believing that God is real, doesn't mean anything. That is not what saving faith is. You see, so often we stop short. We stop right there and we say, well, I believe that God exists. I believe in God. That's not what John is talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. You believe that God exists, great. You are on par with Satan himself. That that doesn't count for much. That doesn't affect life change. This phrase, believe in me, is not just head knowledge. It's not just intellectual assent or agreement. Genuine belief in God results in action. Belief in Jesus is evidenced by repentance in your life. It's evidenced by a repentant heart. Belief in Jesus results in turning away from the world, turning away from sin, because the world is opposed to Jesus as we once were. It means turning from the world and embracing His will and embracing His word. Believing in Jesus, belief that leads to salvation, sets you at odds with the culture and with society. And we saw that evidence in 1 Peter as we went through that book. And it comes with the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable you to live a life that pleases God. The life that you could never live on your own. Jesus describes it Jesus describes it to Nicodemus as being reborn. Dying to your sin and being raised to new life with Christ. That's the, the terminology we use in baptism. Buried with Christ in His death. Dying to sin and raised to walk in newness of life. That whole thing of going under the water and coming back up, being dead and being raised, is this idea of I once was, as Paul describes, I once was a slave to the flesh and a slave to the world, but because of Christ, that's not who I was anymore, who I am anymore. That man has died, and now I've been made new, and the Holy Spirit now dwells within me, and I am not the man I used to be. I'm not perfect, but I'm not the man I used to be. Belief in Jesus kills the old man and gives birth to a new one with a new heart that genuinely loves the Lord. The sin nature remains, so there will always be conflict and there will be imperfection in this life, but we will not be who we were. There is a marked difference. John Newton, the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, which everyone, most people are familiar with, In his early life, he was a transatlantic slave trader. When you think of chattel slavery, John Newton was, that was his business. That's what he did. Transporting slaves from Africa to the New World under horrible conditions, horrific conditions. This was the epitome of evil. That was John Newton's life. That was his enterprise. He was a slave trader. And he came to Christ, and this is how he describes, uh, when, when he came to Christ, everything changed. His world changed. 
But this is how he described belief in Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's what it means to believe in Christ. That's what it means to believe in Him. It means placing your hope and your trust in Him. It means turning over your life to Him. It means throwing in your lot with Him. Identifying with Him. It means leaving the sinful world behind and pursuing the things of Christ. Now this doesn't... Those actions do not earn salvation. They don't earn belief. They don't earn you eternal life. But they're evidence of a heart that genuinely believes and trusts in the Lord. And the two are inseparable. Repentance doesn't earn you salvation, but genuine belief in Christ always is evidenced in repentance. There's no such thing as an impenitent believer. It doesn't exist. You can't be a believer. You can't be a Christ follower and not have a penitent heart. We all struggle. We all stumble. And none of us are perfect. But if there's never been a moment of genuine repentance, if, if that repentance is not there, that sorrow over sin is not there, then we have no claim to the name of Christ. The gift of salvation from the punishment our sin deserves is freely offered to all. All you need to do is, is accept it through Belief. But though it is freely offered, accepting it will come with certain consequences. So though it is freely offered, it still comes at a cost. There's still the cost. Look here, we're going to switch gears just a little bit and go from the book of John to the gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has can not be my disciple. It doesn't get any more black and white than that. There's no wiggle room. There's no loophole in that statement. Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The anyone implies everyone, and cannot implies there is no other way. It is not optional. If you do not renounce all you have, you are not mine. Period. Now, this does not mean that Christ followers are required to be poor in this life or that we can't have things, but it does mean it does mean that we are to sign everything we have over to him. It's almost like I was reminded this over the last couple of weeks as we've been working through the paperwork for selling our house and I came across uh, some paperwork that we signed a long time ago giving power of attorney to Pastor Mark to help us sign when we bought our house. And in many ways, that's what that's the cost of following Christ. It's signing over power of attorney of your life to God. We're to sign over everything we have to Him. It means that my life is not my life. It's not my life, it's His. My money is not mine, it's God's. My house is not mine, it's God's. My family is not mine, it's God's. My possessions, I have no possessions, they are God's. My skills, my abilities, my job, those are not mine, they are God's. They are gifts from God to be used for His purposes. This is a fundamental life change. 
This is what it means to have an eternal perspective. This is what it means to look at life through a biblical worldview. Now, this is not the cost in the sense that you have to do this in order to get salvation. That would be payment, and it would therefore be earned, and it wouldn't be grace. Rather, this is the natural consequence of genuine faith. This is what happens when one truly believes in Jesus. This is what genuine faith looks like. One who does not or is not willing to turn over control of everything to God shows evidence that they lack genuine faith. A heart that strives for this eternal perspective shows evidence of the existence or possession of genuine faith. You see, this, this heart attitude, this idea of renouncing everything that you have, that serves as evidence of where your heart, where your allegiance truly lies. Life change doesn't earn faith, but genuine faith always, always, always results in life change. 100% of the time. This text, what we've looked at this morning, that is the gospel. That is the gospel. These three verses here in the gospel of John, Jesus summarizes, this is what the good news is. This is the good news, that Christ left heaven. He came to earth because God so loved each and every one of us, because God chose to love us. Jesus came, He lived, He died for us, He rose again, He's seated at the right hand of God. That's, this is the only hope, the only source of hope, the only source of salvation from the penalty that is due our sin. This is the only source of hope and peace in this life at all. This is what the world needs to hear because we will all stand before God one day and give account for how we stewarded our time here on this earth. Did we live for ourselves? Did I live as if my stuff is mine, my family's mine, my house is mine, my job is mine? My skills, my abilities are mine. My money is mine. This stuff is mine. Or did I live my life saying, you know what? All this is God's. God, how do you need to use it to bring glory to you? This is what the world needs to hear. We will all have to give account for how we stood our time here on this earth. But for believers, we still need to hear this. We need to hear this lest we become prideful. We need to be reminded that our salvation is ours only by the love of God. Not because I'm better than anybody else. Not because I'm stronger than everyone else or because I'm smarter than anyone else. God, oh, God my, my eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel and I, and I have saving faith because of God's work in my life. Not because of anything I did. Not because I'm better than anybody else. It's simply because God loved me. My salvation is a result of God's love, not my action. Unless we become despondent, we need to be reminded that our salvation is based on Christ's work on our behalf, not our merit. It's easy to look at my life and how many times I fail and think, well, what's the point of even trying? I'm never going to be good enough. We need to be reminded that you're right. I'm right. I'm never going to be good enough. That's the point. That's why it's all based on the work that Christ did, and His work on my behalf was perfect. My best efforts will never be perfect. That's why, luckily, it doesn't. It, my, my eternity is not dependent on my performance my eternity is secure because it's dependent on his performance and then lest we become complacent we need to be reminded that salvation is found in christ alone 
one of the ways that God has given us to be reminded of the gospel and to remember and to honor His work on our behalf is through the taking of communion. And it's only fitting that we should do so together this morning. And so we're going to move right into that. At the end of your pew, you'll find a bag containing the prepackaged elements. If you are a Christ follower, we invite you to participate with us in taking communion. If you're not, or if you're unsure, we would simply ask that you merely watch and not actually partake of the elements. We have extra in the back. If anyone needs more, if you'll raise your hand, one of our deacons will see that you, that you get what you need. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, is a representation of the body and the blood of Jesus. His body that was broken and His blood that was spilled, that paid our sin debt and guaranteed our future inheritance and glory with Him for all eternity. The communion is a reminder of the gospel. It's a reminder of what Christ did on our behalf because we all need to be reminded each and every day, we need one of, the, one of my favorite quotes, and I don't even remember who said it. A pastor who said that the, the, key to his, the, his, the key to his spiritual growth and spiritual maturity was that every morning when he got up, he preached the gospel to himself every day. And that's true. That's what we need. And communion is a representative representation of that. It reminds us that we are not our own, but that we've been bought with a price. It reminds us that we are to live each day intentionally for the glory of God, for we are His. If we're in Christ, we're exiles in this world. Communion mirrors Jesus' last supper with His disciples, in which He inaugurated this remembrance, so that when He died shortly thereafter, the disciples would continue this ordinance to continuously be reminded of what He had done for them and what it meant for them. Our salvation, our hope, our peace, our eternity rests in what Christ did on the cross. And it's good for us to be reminded of that. And the Apostle Paul instructs the church in Corinth to do the same. And so it's to 1 Corinthians 11 that we'll now turn. 1 Corinthians 11. And I want to preface this by reading in chapter 11, verses 27 through 29, Paul warns against participating in an unworthy manner. Those of you who've been in my Sunday school class in Malachi, we've we've been going through for the last like eleven weeks, looking at what happens. Again, looking at God's word to the nation, to His people who are participating in worthless worship, worship without with a wrong heart attitude. And Paul warns against a very similar heart attitude here in First Corinthians eleven. Look at verses twenty-seven through twenty-nine. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As Kelly plays for just a minute, let's, let's take just a minute and prepare our hearts for what we're about to do. Set aside your plans for lunch this afternoon and focus on Him. Remember the gospel as we have just outlined it. Think about what we just talked about. Look over your outline there. God's motivation, the mission that He sent Christ on. Think about 
the offer that his sacrifice on our behalf extended, the requirement that's there for us, and the cost of following him, what it will, the consequence that will come. Think about those things. Think about the eternity that we have that has been prepared for us. Remember what Christ has done for you and praise Him for it. Before we go any further, I'm going to just ask if everyone, if you'll bow your heads and let's just prepare our hearts in a moment of prayer. I ask that you'll pray in your seat where you're at. Just prepare your heart to partake of the Lord's Supper. And again, enter into this moment just with this appreciation and awe and reverence for what Christ did for us, that we wouldn't just take this for granted. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity we have to set aside this time to be reminded of the gospel, to be reminded of what you did for us. And Lord, just as so often we take our daily freedoms here in this country for granted, Lord, so often we take the freedom that we have in you for granted. So often we take for granted the grace that you show us as if somehow we're entitled to it or we deserve it. And Lord, I ask that you would forgive us of that. Lord, forgive our hearts where we have strayed into selfishness, when we have pursued the things of the world, when we have walked away from you and aligned ourselves with the world, even though the world is completely opposed to you. Lord, help us to to remember the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. Help us not to just go through life with blinders on, but help us to live intentionally each and every day to bring honor and glory to your name. Lord, help us to sign over the deed to everything that you've given us because it's all yours anyway. Help us to sign it over to you and use it how you direct. Our money, our bank accounts, our houses, our families, where we live, what we do, how we serve. Lord, help us not to focus on the sacrifice. Help us to focus on the service. Lord, help us to to use our lives, to spend ourselves, to invest ourselves in your kingdom, in your will, in your word, and not in the things of the world, the things that are passing away. And Lord, help us to to praise your name this morning. Lord, I thank you again for the opportunity we have to participate in this ordinance that you've established. But Lord, again, help it not to just become something that we check off the list. Help it not to just be a box that we check, a routine that we go through. But Lord, help us to stop and reflect. Lord, we know this is just a piece of bread. It's just grape juice. But it represents so much more. Help us to, as we, as we partake of this, help us to not just remember what you did, but help us to, may this be worship of you. Help us to praise you. Help us to just reflect and be thankful for what you've done for us. And again, help it as we, as we leave this place. May our time this morning shape everything we say and do as we go out of here, Lord. Mold us into your image, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.